Amen. I started preaching in this uh, book of James uh, some in June of 2012. Some of these kids probably weren't even born by then, but it's been a while, seven years ago. And at that time, I was challenged to, and I challenged each one of you, to read this book of James. It would take you about 20 minutes at one setting instead of seven years, I'm sure. But before you do that, ask the Holy Spirit to just give you something from it, just just something that you can read uh, as you read along, because this thing is packed full of all kinds of things that will affect our lives, each one of us. Perhaps it will even convict us of some things, areas that uh, need to be a little bit worked on. James is hard on people, if you read that book. It's just, you, you can't get away from it. Remember, James was the author. He's the, the author of this book is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was other brothers. So you see that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, or 55, 13, 55, excuse me, where he said there was uh, Simon was a brother, Joseph and uh, Jude, the one that wrote the book of Jude. <clears throat> but their mother, of course, was Mary, and uh, Jesus' uh, father, of course, was, uh, G- was God, and where their father was Joseph. And a lot of people don't realize that. Uh, you've never read that, perhaps, you know, before you came to the Lord. But you saw that and you said, wow, I didn't know he had some half-brothers or sisters, too. <clears throat> but the Christians, these 12 tribes that he writes to were Christians, born-again Christians, who were scattered because of the persecution of the church at that time. 12 tribes he's writing to here. Uh, and they're not tribes as we know today, the Sioux, the Cherokee, the Apache, or the Cheyenne. It's not those type of tribes, as you know. But it was Abraham's descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And, of course, Jacob had 12 sons, and uh, you can see those sons mentioned in chapter 34 of Genesis. And also Jacob's name was changed to Israel in chapter 35 of Genesis. People that James were writing to were Abraham's descendants then, Jacob's sons, uh, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Benjamin, and the list goes on. You can see that also in the book of Genesis. Paul mentions in his writings that he was from the tribe, he mentioned tribe of Benjamin in Romans chapter 11. Now keep in mind as you read this letter that James was writing to born-again Jewish believers in Christ. And we are fortunate to be able to read his mail, read his letter as he wrote to these people. So the first application then would be to those folks that were scattered abroad, probably because of the persecution of Stephen, who lost his life in Acts chapter 7. Uh, he was stoned to death, as you recall, and then the people just scattered. And, of course, the second application is to you and me as we read the Scripture. But a brief review this morning, seems how it's been seven years, that uh, he says, he starts out, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that it's a testing of your faith. So when you go through trials, perhaps some of you are going through trials right now, God is just testing your faith to see if you're going to hang on to him or whatever. 
See, and, and if you pass that person, if you pass that test of your faith, it drives the roots down a little farther for the next persecution that will come or the next trial that will come, and you'll be able to hang on through the winds of adversity, whatever it'll be. That's just the way it is. You're going to undergo some trials in this life, folks. That's just the way it is. If you live long enough, you will have some trials. So what will it do to your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Consider it all joy. That's how you consider joy, because you know you're getting tested. Remember Jesus said, or it said of Jesus, that because of the cross that stood before him, he endured the cross because he could see the joy that was set before him. The joy was to see each one of us come to him. So he went through that cross. Consider it all joy. And then if you're having trouble through in those trials, he says, ask for wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him, he says. It'll be given. That's a promise. Hang on to that promise. Ask, but you've got to ask with faith, he says, without any doubting. And he says in verse 13, chapter 1, he says, we can't blame God or anyone else when we're tempted. He says, God doesn't tempt anyone. So you're tempted and carried away by your own lust that's within you. That's when you're carried away. And if you continue to go down that route, you continue to fall into that temptation and give birth to sin, he says. In chapter 1, verse 19, he says, Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I'm still working on that one, to tell you the truth. Because uh, sometimes we're a little quick to speak or a little quick to lose our cool. And we should be listening. He's quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. <clears throat> and now the next verse he says in verse 20 and chapter 1, he says, uh, he says to bridle your tongue. Learn to bridle your tongue. Keep a bridle on it. Chapter 2, he mentions the sin of partiality. It's a sin to uh, lean towards the rich, he says, and um, neglect the poor. It's a sin. We never thought of that. A lot of times when we read the whole Bible, we never thought, well, if to be partial to one group of people over the another, that's not good. That's a sin, He's, he calls it. A spade, a spade here. Also, in 2.26, he says our faith in, Jew, in Jesus is dead. Faith without works is dead, he says. So when we come to Christ, people should be able to see some works. We can't just say, well, I gave my life to Jesus 40 years ago. You know, don't get on my case. We should have some works. We should have some fruit to show that we have given our life to Christ. And that should be evident every day. You know, people should be able to see that fruit in our life. Faith without works is dead. Chapter 3 is probably one you'd like to skip over because it deals with the tongue. We're all guilty of tongues that say things. We say things. We can't take it back. We'd like to. Oh, why did I say that? He's, he calls it a sin here, the sins of the tongue. He says in the end of that chapter, he says, with the same tongue, we bless the Lord and we curse God. Same tongue, maybe the same day. We might have prayed and blessed the Lord and later on we curse man. Too bad. He says, these things ought not to be this way, he said in chapter 3. Chapter 4, he said, to submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. What a promise. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. A lot of times we don't stand on that promise. <clears throat> Chapter 4, verse 13, he says, It's a mistake to plan our future without including God in those plans. 
Many times we got all got plans, but we neglect to say, well, Lord, is this what you want me to do? So we neglect to ask God what he wants to do. And as we finished up chapter 4, verse 17, he says, to the one who knows the right thing to do, you can see it right there. I hope you got your Bibles open to chapter 5, last verse in chapter 4, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. We know the right thing to do. We said, ah, so what? No, God says it's a sin. If we know the right thing to do, we should be doing this, we should be doing that, or we shouldn't be doing this or that. We know the right thing to do, we don't do it, it's sin. This guy don't let us off the hook. And now he's getting harder and harder on us as he brings up then chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And I call it the misuse of riches. I stole that title from the title of my own Bible. It says the misuse of riches right under chapter 5. And uh, maybe yours said the same thing. We can make it more personal, the misuse of our riches. But before we put on the snooze alarm and say, well, this won't apply to me. You know, I'm not rich. Hey, take a personal inventory of all the material things that you have in your home, in your possession. And think about it. Take a little inventory before you say, I'm not rich. Uh, you remember Jesus promised us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. What's these things he's talking about? The previous verses. He talks about food and clothing. That's it. He says, don't worry about it. You seek me and seek my righteousness. I'll provide the food and clothing. Now, for you and me, we're sitting here today, do you have more than just food and clothing? You're rich. You're definitely rich. So, we're moving right on to here. We're going to take a look. If you got beyond the necessities of this life, beyond what Jesus promised, you're a rich person, you and I. Let's stand as we look at this scripture, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, in James chapter 5, if you've got it open, 1 through 6. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which have been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Verse 6. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man, and he does not resist you. Let's pray. Father God, we have to have our hearts open to you as we prayed this morning. We open our heart to you right now. We've got to open up our ears. Lord, we have to set aside what we're going to do this afternoon, what happened to us this morning, what kind of bugged us on the freeway or the highway or 395 or down the road, what the neighbor did. Father, we have to set all that aside and just listen to you. What do you have for us? Lord, just speak through me to each person here. Each one, Lord. Don't admit anybody. Omit them, Father, but speak to their heart. And God, let us respond to what you have to say to us. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Please be seated, folks. <clears throat> I got a little, little illustration here from one of Chuck Swindoll's books called Living on the Ragged Edge. It might help you, it might help to remember Yusuf, the terrible Turk. Yusuf was a 350 pound wrestling champion in Europe a little over two generations ago. And actually, when I looked it up, it was 1898. <clears throat> so it's a little while back, all right. After he won the European Championship, he sailed uh, to the United States to beat our champion, whose name was Strangler Lewis. This is a true story. <laughs> a little guy by comparison who weighed just a shade over 200 pounds. Although he wasn't huge, Strangler had a simple plan for defeating his opponents. It had never failed to work. He would put that massive arm around the neck of his opponent. He'd pump up the bicep and cut the oxygen off right up there, right next to the Adam's apple. Many an opponent had passed out in the ring with Strangler Lewis. The problem that he had when he came up to fighting the terrible Turk was that the European giant didn't have a neck. You ever seen people like that? <laughs> didn't have a neck. His body just went from his head to those massive shoulders. Lewis could never get a hold, so he wasn't, it wasn't long enough before Yusuf flipped Lewis down on his mat, on the mat, and he pinned him. After winning the championship, the Turk demanded all $5,000 be given to him in gold. And by the way, you might say, well, that's not much, $1,500 an ounce now, but in those days it was less than $20 an ounce. Anyway, he demanded all be given to him in gold. After he wrapped the championship belt around his vast middle, he stuffed the gold into his belt and boarded the next ship back to Europe. He was now the possessor of America's gold and glory. He had won it all, all except immortality. He set sail on the SS Bergone. Halfway across the Atlantic, a storm struck, and a ship and began to sink. Yusuf went over the side with his gold still strapped to his body. The weight, the added weight, was too much for the Turk, and he sank like an iron anvil before they could ever get to him with the lifeboats. He was never seen again. So I guess you can take it with you, huh? No, I just threw it. Throw that. No, you can't. You can't. But what a picture of a, a waste, huh? A misuse of riches, driven by greed. And gold, if we don't know it, won't get you into glory. Riches can be a blessing or they can be a curse. To Yusuf, they were a curse. We note that James uses some pretty strong language here in these first six verses of chapter 5. Now, I should mention here that the Bible does not condemn the rich nor does it say anything that was anything wrong with being wealthy. Some of the most wealthy, rich people in our Bible, godly people, men and women, they're wealthy. Like Job, we know he's, he was wealthy. Abraham, David, Solomon, New Testament, Nicodemus, uh, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Joseph of Arimathea were rich individuals. So the Bible didn't say anything against being rich or wealthy. One of the most misquoted verses in our Bible is people say, well, money is the root of all evil. But look closely at 1 Timothy 6.10. It says, 
money is, or, excuse me, the love of money is at the root of all sorts of evil. It's the love of money. James wants his readers to get the right perspective of money here and understand us to understand the responsibility that comes with it. The richer we are, the more responsibility we have. Now, James begins verse 1, warning the rich believers about some of the miseries that are just around the corner because of their misuse of material riches that God has blessed them with. The first misuse of riches, he said, is hoarding. Hoarding. To hoard means to stock up, to store up. And notice verse 2 and 3 again. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. As I was going door-to-door in Southern California when we started our church there, the first thing I noticed, they're beautiful homes, by the way, but I don't remember ever seeing a single garage. They were all double garages. But the first thing I noticed was that the majority, and I mean the majority, uh, of the cars, the people that belonged to the cars, the cars were parked in the driveway. They weren't parked in the garage. Well, on nice days, a lot of people would open those garage doors if they were home. They'd sit out front inside that with a little bit of shade because of the sunshine down there and then Southern Cal. And they would open those garage doors, and I saw why they didn't park the cars in there. Those garages were stuffed full of important, valuable stuff, we could say. I'm sure it was valuable. Now, uh, I got a couple of sheds like that myself, I'm afraid to say, or ashamed to say. But how about you? Do you have some of those? They're just stuffed full of this valuable stuff. Who would have thought? 30 to 40 years ago, that storage shed business would ever take off. <laughs> but Bauman Brothers are glad it did, <laughs> I'm sure. But it has. It's just amazing. You would have come up with that idea. Well, you would have come up with that idea during the Depression. Forget it. You know, there's no sense having a storage shed. You know, they reused everything. But let me ask you, what do you have in that garage or that storage shed, the attic or the basement? has been there for years. What are you saving it for? The people in James' time was speaking, uh, they were guilty of hoarding, actually. Their gold and silver and some perishable things, like garments and even grain, fruits and vegetables, stored up treasures, as he puts it in verse 3. Their treasures would rot, rust, he says, and become moth-eaten, verse 2. Then someday, when it was all gone, last days, he says here, those treasures would be used as a witness against them, a witness of how self-centered, stingy, or greedy that they were. 25 years after James wrote this book, or wrote this letter, excuse me, Jerusalem was invaded and completely destroyed. The wealthy and the poor alike were stripped of everything that they owned. The riches that they had hoarded for perhaps years were now taken away by strangers. That wasn't the intent for hoarding, I'm sure. <clears throat> and they would use, use what they 
But the people, rich person, had hoarded all those years. So then what's the solution for us not to be guilty of this sin of hoarding? Simple. Use it or lose it. Use it or lose it. God holds us responsible, folks, for the treasures that we've withheld, those that we've hoarded through the years. He has blessed most of us with abundance of things, all, a lot of wants, not necessities, just wants. We want this, we want that. He's blessed us time and time again as we check through those attics, garages, and sheds. Are some of those riches begin to rust, mold, or rot? Are some stored garments in those boxes become moth-eaten or mouse-eaten? While I was preparing this message, I went out and I checked one of my storage sheds, and I found a set of golf clubs that were in the corner. And right in front of it was a pile of these uh, for pine cones. And I knew I'd had a squirrel around there, and I didn't think too much of it. But that, thing, that squirrel had eaten a hole in the bottom of that bag of golf clubs. And, uh, and then a bunch of that junk inside, and I had to clean it up. It, it was uh, too bad. <laughs> you, Lou had bought me those golf clubs years ago, I think, where we were in La Grande. A guy in Moreno Valley, California, taught me how to swing those things. And for some reason, I thought I would always use them again. But who was I kidding? I, you know, I, if I'm going to swing anything, it would be my cane. It wouldn't be the golf club. So, but I kept it all, just in the back of my mind. You might, you might have some of those treasures like yourself. I mean, you might have them yourself. That squirrel has sure messed up that bag of golf clubs. Could some of those pre- that precious stuff in your storage shed be used to help someone else not as fortunate as you are. Some unused treasure. Remember, folks, a hoarded treasure is good for nothing or nobody. Let me read to you about a, an example of a, a hoarded, a person that was guilty of hoarding. Mrs. Bertha Adams. Mrs. Bertha Adams, 71 years old, died alone in West Palm Beach, Florida on Easter Sunday. The coroner's report read, cause of death, malnutrition. She had wasted away to 50 pounds. When the state authorities made their preliminary investigation of Mrs. Adams' home, they found that it was like a pig pen. The biggest mess you can ever imagine, one said. One reason, seasoned inspector declared he had never seen a dwelling in greater disarray. The woman had begged food from the neighbors' back doors and gotten what clothing she had from the Salvation Army. From all outward appearances, she was a penniless recluse, a pitiful and forgotten widow. But such was not the case. Amid the jumble of her unclean belongings, the officials found two keys to safe deposit boxes at two different local banks. In the first box were over 700 AT&T stock certificates plus hundreds of other valuable certificates, bonds, and solid financial securities, not to mention the stack of cash amounting to nearly $200,000. The second box contained $600,000, adding the net worth of both boxes they had found well over a million dollars. Fact is, Bertha Adams wasn't saving her money at all. She was worshiping it. 
She was hoarding it, gaining a twisted satisfaction out of watching the stacks grow higher and higher as she shuffled along the streets, wearing the garb of a beggar. Let's not be guilty of that. When our day of reckoning comes, we don't want those unused treasures to be used as a witness against us, as James puts it, do we? No, or like they were used for Bertha Adams. Folks, search our hearts as well as those closets, as well as in our homes, <clears throat> excuse me, as well as our bank books, and see if some unused treasure could be used for the Lord's work. Jesus, or James, echoes the same words as Jesus in Matthew, or Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 and 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys where neither, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The misuse of riches. The next one we see that James mentioned here is fraud. Number two, fraud. Fraud means to cheat, to deceive, to be dishonest. <clears throat> the new King James puts it this way, verse four. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, uses the word right there, Cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. My dad told me uh, about what happened to him when he was 17 years old. He hired on as a day laborer. He was raised on a farm in South Dakota, so he knew a little bit about farming. He hired on as a day laborer uh, at a nearby farm, sacking grain from a threshing machine. Some of you have probably seen a threshing machine before combines. But usually they shot the grain in these sacks and then they hand the sack to someone else and they sold it. And that's what you did all day. <clears throat> he said the going wage, now you remember this was 1933 or 34, I don't remember if it was exact, but it was during the Depression. The going wage was a dollar a day. And he was satisfied with that, but you worked from sunup to sunset, dollar a day. He had another job later on when he was married to mom that, that uh, he worked for a dollar a day. Well, at the end of the day, I remember him telling me he lined up with the rest of the guys to get his day's wages. That's just the way it was. But when it came to his turn to get paid, the foreman looked at him and says, what do you want? He said, well, I want my wage. I've been working here all day. He says, get lost, kid. No money for you. And he never did get paid. It happened. And it's an old game. It was, a popular, it was popular even in James's day, in the biblical days. As he said here, the rich landowners hired the poor to do their harvesting, but they withheld their wages, making them richer and richer. Note the scene is set after the harvest here in verse 4. The owners were well able to pay the wages. They were guilty of fraud. God said in Leviticus 19.13, you shall not Oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of the hired man are not to be re remain with you all night until morning. <clears throat> so the miseries that James talks about in verse 1 of fraud for the rich 
would be when the outcries of the laborers reached the ears of the Lord of the harvest, when they reached God. The rich may have turned a deaf ear to the cries of the oppressed laborers, but God doesn't. He never stands idle when his people are being cheated. So then, how can we as Christians not be guilty of fraud, of this sin of fraud? Solution number two, be honest in our dealings, our business dealings with all people. As an employer, pay a fair salary. As an employee, give a full day's work for a full day's pay. And I might add this one, is that if you're an employee for anyone, a good Christian employee, don't take the company's time to tell that fellow employee about Jesus. Wait till lunch. Wait till after work. Your best witness is how you work. You're given a full day's work for a full day's pay. And as Christians, we should be faithful to pay our bills on time. And if we have credit cards, we should pay them off monthly and not just the minimum balance. I know of more than one person. They say, well, as long as I can make the minimum payment, I'm fine. But these things shouldn't work. We shouldn't be paid off monthly. Remember the scripture, Romans 13, 8. Owe no man anything except love. When our last days come, as James mentions here in verse 3, that unpaid balance could be used as a witness against us. It's a bad witness when the unsaved world tell of Christians who owe them money and apparently had no intention of paying them. Those creditors comment many times, and they call themselves Christians? You've heard it, I have. Remember, the outcries of the ones who have been shortchanged may reach the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. Which reminds me of a popular song I heard years ago before I was a Christian. And if you know this song, it probably just dates you. But it's uh, it's called Sunday Morning Christian. And I memorized this long before I was saved. Because I thought it did, at that time, I thought it did. It was a good song for uh, what a Sunday morning Christian is. It It was about a car salesman. Here's how it goes. Mr. Jones, this car you sold me isn't all that I desire. You swore it was young and healthy, but I found it old and tired. But a deal's a deal, you tell me. There is nothing to be done. Mr. Jones, I liked you better if you robbed me with a gun. You're a Sunday morning Christian, sir, singing louder than the rest. Beg forgiveness at the altar with your chin down on your chest. But tomorrow will be Monday. You'll revert back to your ways. Gouging, kicking, cheating, shoving with no thoughts of God or loving. Don't let me stand in your way. Surely God will forgive you next Sunday. Sunday morning, Christian. (sighs) Got to remember, folks. The best witness is when we leave here between Sundays. That's where people are watching you. And they know that you're the one that carried the Bible inside this church. How do you carry it through the week? How do you live it? The next misuse of riches, verses 5 and 6, wasting, wasting. Here's how James puts it. 
You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. These wealthy people were guilty of indulging in wasteful living, while the poor around them were suffering from the lack of the bare necessities for life. The poor often died of starvation, excuse me, starvation, because they had they couldn't get as money from the guys that they worked for. They couldn't pay their bills, so they end up in jail. They couldn't pay them while they were in jail or in prison, so they died there. And that's what he's talking about at the end of verse 6 when he says, He does not resist you. He can't afford to turn around and sue you for his wages. He doesn't resist. He dies there. <clears throat> Living, and verse 5 says, living in luxury and wanton pleasure. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't use the word wanton very often. But it means unrestrained, recklessly arrogant. Paul wrote to Timothy saying, in the last days when men, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. 2 Timothy 3, 4. Does that sound like today? Lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. So what miseries then will come upon the ones who have lived such a wasteful, luxurious life on this earth? James says, you have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. This verse in the Greek language given, is given a picture of cattle or hogs who have nothing to do but to eat themselves to death, unaware of the fact that they are fattening up themselves for the day of their own slaughter, growing fatter and fatter day by day, hour by airless, air, <clears throat> by hour, careless of the fact that each day, each hour, they're coming closer and closer to the butcher. So it is with those who engage in self-indulgence, never realizing they're a waste of day of slaughter, a day of reckoning, a day of judgment is up ahead. James says these people were guilty of indulging their physical appetites to the place of wasteful living. But let's take some time to examine our own lives today. Have we been guilty of wasting? What about those gardens that we put in this year? Some of it going to waste now that it's starting to ripen or whatever. I see Bauman's brought some cucumbers out there. Don't forget to take some of those. What about those fruit trees? We lost the fruit in the backyard and it just keeps dropping on the ground because we've taken what we need. Could it be used instead of wasted? Could we make better use of any of the produce that we have around our place rather than let it go to waste? So the solution for not wasting is pretty simple. For number three, be a good steward. Be a good steward of what God has given. Remember, God is the owner of all the riches are riches. We are just stewards. He wants us to be good stewards of what he has given each of us. No matter how we might have used our intelligence, our influence, our ingenuity, our education to gain our wealth, God must be recognized as the giver of all of our material wealth. <clears throat> a lot of people, I've run into a lot of Christians that don't pray even before meals. I've even heard them say well, why? I worked hard to put this food on the table. Yeah, you're fortunate, my friend. You, 
might not have been able to work at all. God put it on the table for you. We have plenty to be thankful for. It's all a trust from him. He's the owner, we're the stewards. Remember, he gave it, he can take it away at any time. Job said that, didn't he? <clears throat> he said, naked I came in from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. James says at the beginning of this passage, Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. Otherwise, he's asking them, before the day of slaughter, turn from your ways. That's what he's saying here. It's an appeal, actually, for them to repent before it's too late. That's why he's right. I believe that appeal is relevant today as it was for them in that day. God has blessed us with the abundance by just living here in America. We should just thank him for that. Who said we had to be born here? Who said we couldn't have been born somewhere else like thousands, millions have who are just struggling for food and clothing? We are a blessed people. And this passage of scripture for today is for each one of us as well as for them. He appeals to us through James's rebuke to his readers to no longer hoard what he has entrusted to us. Instead, use it to help someone or lose it. To no longer, and to not use fraud as a means of getting ahead, dishonest gain, but instead be honest in your business dealings, not to cheat an employer or an employee. He also appeals to us not to waste, but instead to be good stewards of what he's entrusted to us. The question that comes before us, if tomorrow you were to lose all of your material possessions, as well as your health, and it happens all the time, all we have to do is watch the news, fires, floods, whatever, as well as your HUD, would there be anything left? Remember, a person is not rich or poor according to what he or she has, but according to what he or she is. Someday, folks, we will have to stand before our maker and he'll call us to account for how we earned our money, how we spent our money, and how we used our money. What's going to be your response to those questions? By the way, can anyone use a set of slightly used golf clubs? (laughs) See me after church. A verse that came to my mind is well, we work, while I was working on this message was 2 Corinthians 8 9. I think it's in the bottom of your bulletin. It speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, when was Jesus, he's speaking of Jesus here, when was Jesus ever rich? Before he left the Father, while he was still in heaven. When did he become poor? When he came here to this earth, born in a manger. He said during his ministry, he said, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And remember when he died on that cross, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. He was poor. Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. When did you become rich? He says, that you through your, his poverty might become rich. That was his whole purpose for coming here, 
dying on the cross so that we can be rich. So we can take care of that sin, those sins, that one that plagues you, that you did in your younger days perhaps. It just keeps plaguing you. shouldn't after this. Once you've confessed it, it's behind you. So you can become rich. Rich spiritually, true. This type of riches, this type of richness can pay your ticket to heaven just by putting your trust in Jesus Christ. I'm going to sing about a, such a person here. A person that people just gave up on. Maybe you're praying for somebody like that. You know, Steve challenged us a few weeks ago to pray for five people and uh, that need, need the Lord. Maybe somebody on your list, you say, I'm praying for them, but man, they're so far from the Lord. They're so far from giving up. They're so far from throwing in. They've, they're still dependent on themselves. What am I going to do? Well, such is the man or the woman, we could say. This song is all about <clears throat> get a shot of water here. But maybe that was you. Maybe somebody said that about you, huh? They'll never come to Jesus. There's a slight chance. Never. But people didn't give up on you. 